Hi, I'm Philippe. I'm Justine. And this is the Boards Network Podcast. This show is an open-ended exploration of the people and practices behind the most effective boards of directors. Private companies rule a big part of the world around us, and boards dictate their strategy and decisions. We believe that by changing boards, we can change the world. Today we have George Brad on the show, who's going to tell us more about CEO onboarding. George Brad has a unique perspective on transformational leadership based on his experience as a business leader, consultant, and journalist. He progressed through sales, marketing, and general management roles around the world at companies including Unilever, Procter & Gamble, Coca-Cola, and J.D. Power's Power Information Network spinoff as chief executive. Now he's a principal of CEO Connection and managing director of the executive onboarding group Prime Genesis. George is a graduate of Harvard and has a world MBA. He's the co-author of four books on onboarding, including The New Leader's 100-Day Action Plan, and he's the co-author of a weekly column on Forbes, The New Leader's Playbook. So, George Brett, thank you very much for being here today. Uh, delighted to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Maybe we can start the conversation by going back a little bit in the early 2000s when you were actually a manager. You had a very interesting experience leading the spin-off of a division of J.D. Power & Associates. Could you tell us a little bit more about the context behind this transaction? Sure. J.D. Power & Associates is a research company, and it's specialized in doing research um, in the automobile industry. It then, it then went out and did research in other industries, but it's particularly known for its customer satisfaction research. You see the J.D. Power name in a lot of places, number one on the J.D. Power list, things like that. Dave Power realized that there was an opportunity to dig into transaction data as well as research. Mm -hmm. So think about what scanners did for supermarkets. Dave wanted to do that for the automobile industry. And he got the trans, a lot of the transaction data. The, the business was collecting the transaction data so that you could then figure out what made people buy cars in different situations. And he brought me in to run this division of his company, which we ran for a while. And I ran it for three years. Over the three years, we uh, tripled the revenue and grew the profits sixfold and spun it off as a separate freestanding entity. Mm -hmm. And the heart of the business was with this transaction data, we were able to do modeling that helped us uh, understand what consumers did. And we were able to go back to the automobile companies and help guide a lot of their decisions. Why did you decide to spin off the company and not keep it J.D. Power Associates? The reason we uh, the day one to spend it off was it was all about leverage. The thought was the the businesses might in some ways compete with each other, and he wanted to keep the integrity of the consumer research different than the transaction stuff. And the thought was uh, eventually we could do acquisitions and expand the business. The data it, it Dave ended up selling the whole company. So we, the, the, the spinoff got merged back into the company, it got sold to Scripps, and then they did other things with it. But the premise was to spin it off, leverage it, and uh, use it as a platform for other acquisitions. How do you think about structuring the board of a company that's being spun off? In this particular case, early on, we kept the boards the same. So we had, there was the board of J.D. Power & Associates, 
and then the board of this new company at first were they were identical but separate and the plan was that over time as we as we uh leveraged up and, and did more acquisitions we'd bring in other board members uh, we never got there so the boards were the same interesting and so did you have different meetings on the same day or operationally how, how did that work when you think about boards you've got different people playing different roles and when boards work right the boards are accountable for governance and oversight and then the boards approve strategic annual operating plans and and a bunch of other plans um, so they're accountable for governance approve the plans but then advise on everything else The CEO, in this case me, is accountable for the strategic operating and organizational plans and their results and the culture of the organization. So there were the board meetings. We did board meetings every quarter. But as I was managing the board and working with the board, an awful lot of work happened between the board meetings. So I would make sure to go out and meet with the individual board members, get them up to speed on everything, get their input on the important issues so that by the time we got to the board members we we knew what we wanted to discuss we knew what was important to the board members and we maximized the time on board level issues and minimized the time on administrative issues since both boards were the same can you tell us a little bit more about the process they went through to find you and convince you to join the new company i was brought in to to run a division the process was I guess the interesting piece was they were looking for uh, a general manager. The title was going to be partner in charge of the division. And they had an executive recruiter. When they found me, they realized they could do more. And so the job evolved while we were talking. And they ended up making me an executive partner and gave me equity in the company and really set it up for the spinoff. So the, the process was they were looking for one person, found me. Uh, they realized we could do different things so we evolved the role together how long was that process how much time did it take see i'm not sure my guess is they were looking for a few months before they found me from the moment they first contacted me till i joined was it was it was really only a few months do you remember your first board meeting so the first board meeting would have happened ap- after the spin-off so we We worked with with Dave and the existing board on the way to the spinoff, but the first board meeting after the spinoff, I, I absolutely remember it because it was when I took charge. And uh, my own personal bias, given my background, is to lead with strategies. So you, you can basically sort any organization if you uh, line up people plans and processes around a shared purpose. Plans are the heart of a strategic process. People are the heart of an organizational process. And then practices are the part of an operational process. So that's the way I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I lead with strategies. So the very first thing that I did with the board at the very first meeting was, was lay out the strategy for the next few years and got them to agree to it. And you, you may find this interesting. One of the techniques I use is called a board two-step. And I partly invented this and partly stole it from stole parts of it from Ken Chenault at American Express. And the thought is, if you take Brian Smith's work that he did in in the fifth fifth discipline handbook or field book, mm-hmm. he suggests 
there are five ways to persuade somebody to do something. Going from most directive to least directive, you can tell, you can sell, you can test, you can consult, or you can co-create. Okay. Now, with a board, me as the CEO or the chief executive, I can't really tell the board what to do. They think I work for them, so that doesn't work. And if I go in and co-create and say, blank page, let's just make it up together, they think I'm not leading. So that doesn't work. That leaves you with the middle three, sell, test, consult. And the two-step says you don't go in and sell first. So when I was trying to get them to understand the strategy, get them to agree to the strategy, step one is going in consulting or testing. Hey, board members, if you've got three roles, You have an accountability role, an approval role, an advisory role. Put on your advisory hats. Think of yourself as a board of advisors at this point. I'm not going to ask you to vote on anything. Really just want your input. Want you to consult with me. Want to test some ideas. It makes it a safe environment for board members to give you your perspective. And back to the point I made earlier, not all those conversations happen in the board meetings. So spent time with board members, got their input. Then. That's step one. Between step one and step two, you go away. And you just give them space so they can talk to each other. And in this case, part of it was talking to Dave because Dave was the majority owner. And the board members might have to convince Dave of something or Dave might say, this is what's important. So they did that. That's step two. That's the middle step. And then step two is go in and sell. And and so by that first board meeting, I'd, I'd had the conversation with the board members and went in to sell them on the strategy. Note, the word is sell, not railroad. I didn't walk in and say, you've all agreed, so I just want your rubber snap. Mm -hmm. I said, I've had conversations with all of you. It seems these are the three issues we need to discuss or the three opportunities we need to discuss. Would like you to discuss this as a board and give approval to the strategy. So that was the first first board meeting. Then I did a one-page summary of the strategy And then every board deck after that, everything I ever sent them, that strategy or the next version of the strategy was always the first page. And at one point, one of the board members said, George, why do you always put the same first page on the deck? And I said, because that's the strategy we're operating against. And we're going to operate against that until you agree to change it. And I want to be clear to everybody that that's the framework we're operating on. So that strategy helped, on the one hand, guide what we were doing, and two, helped remind the board members of what they'd agreed so that they could guide us in the right direction. Can we fast forward to the end of that story and how that came to an end and how that led to you founding Prime Genesis? Dave was the majority owner, and he and I disagreed on the right approach going forward and he wanted to do it his way and he was in charge and it was time for me to go do something else yeah i think it'd be more interesting to better understand if there were key events in your management career that led you to believe that onboarding was really a critical issue that you wanted to spend a lot of time on so i was uh my career was sales marketing general management actually just before i got to jd power Associates, sort of two jobs back I was um, vice president of marketing information and planning for Coca-Cola in Japan. And we brought in a vice president to work for us to run some of the brands. 
and we'd spent a fortune and months recruiting and we we had to pay the executive recruiter we had to pay a signing bonus we had to buy out his stock options we had to relocate him and his family and his dog and his wine to japan <laughs> and after hundreds of thousands of dollars and months and months and months he finally walked in the door and was greeted with oh hi you're here we're so excited to see you yes we're so glad you're here wait 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 we need to find you an office and uh, wait, wait, I know you'll need a computer and Macy's business card. Yes, but but we're so excited to see you. And I went, are, are, are you kidding me? How is this a surprise? We've known for months that this guy was coming and we weren't ready. So I pulled two people together and I said, we're going to figure out a better way to do this. And over the next month, created a way of doing it. And when the next person showed up, we had her office ready, her name on the door. We had flowers for her. We had her computer. We had orientation books. We had orientation meetings. And we were ready to bring her in and make her really welcome and help her to do business. So I saw that. And then I went from Japan to China, where I was Coke's deputy president and region manager. And I made people do it there. And then I did it at J.D. Power and Associates. And it really worked. And so when I was done with J.D. Power and Associates or when Dave was done with me, I said, I think there's a real need. And we started the company. And as we did this, we figured out that uh, 40% of new leaders fail in their first 18 months. And the, the seminal study on this was done by an executive search firm called Hydrogen Struggles, mm -hmm. where they looked at 20,000 of the searches they'd done and found that of those 20,000, 8,000 of the people they'd placed were either fired, forced out, or quit within 18 months. So that's that's the base. And both Prime Genesis solved that problem. And over the last 17 years, we have reduced that failure rate from 40% down to below 4%. And overall, if you look at the market, I don't think that is getting better. I think other studies show that CEO turnover increased by 50% over the last decade and by 300% for performance-related departures. So uh, indeed, like many of these failures are linked to leadership failures. So we'd be interested to hear from you after your you know, more than a decade of experience in the space now, what are the common mistakes executives make when they join a new firm? New leaders fail for one of three reasons. Either they don't fit, they don't deliver, or they don't adjust to a change down the road. And whoever you talk to blames the other guys. If you talk to the company about a fit issue, you say, you oh, know, they just didn't fit. If you talk to the executive, it's like, yeah, they didn't, they weren't who they pretended to be. If you talk to them about a delivery issue, the company says that person, that CEO, couldn't get done with what we needed them to do. And they'll say, the organization didn't give me the resources I needed to get done what I needed to get done. If they can't adjust, everybody says, so those are the three issues. How having a conscious approach to onboarding can help? The analogy I give, imagine if you would, you are driving from Ethiopia to Kenya. And you get to Mayal, which is on the border. You go into the police station. You clear your passport. You are now back in your car. You've left Ethiopia. You're in Kenya. 
you put your seatbelt on, you turn on the car, you check your mirrors, you put your foot on the gas. What is the next thing you must do? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. And there's no reason why you should know. And the answer is uh, you must switch sides of the road. Oh, right. Right. <laughs> and they drive on the left. And it's kind of funny. But if you don't do it, you're going to have a head-on collision, which is not a good thing. So here's the trouble. When executives switch companies, they don't know to switch sides of the road. And every company drives on different sides of the road in so many different ways. And they don't know what to get into. And they rely on, on what made them successful before. And they, their instinct is to keep doing what they've been doing. And, and the essence of our approach is more deliberate approach to onboarding where they converge into the organization. They take a structured approach to figure out how to do it. And so we, we have them do four things. And this is, this is the core of, core of our business. And guess what? It applies to executives. It applies to board members. applies to everybody. Four ideas. One, get a head start. This is about planning in advance because preparation breeds competence. It's about jump-starting relationships, and we can talk about that in more detail if you want. So there's, you get a head start, number one. Two, you have to manage your message. So everything you do, everything you say, everything you don't do, everything you don't say, and the order in which you do or don't do or say or don't say it communicates. And if you don't take charge of your own positioning and narrative, somebody else will, and they'll position you in some way in their mind. So idea two is manage your message, take charge of your own position. Three, once you get there, once you've evolved, once you've joined up with a team, then you have to set the direction and build the team. Then we've got some building blocks, what we call tactical capacity that people can do over the first hundred days, which jumpstarts the team. It jumpstarts, amazingly enough, from the earlier part of this conversation, you jumpstart the strategic process, the operational process, the organizational process. And then last, once you get to the 100 days, you've got to sustain momentum. You have to deliver results. And this goes to management cadence and learning and evolution. So four things. Get a head start, manage the message, set direction, build the team, sustain momentum, deliver results, all as part of converging before you evolve. I think these four main ideas develop into eight concrete steps in your 100-day onboarding plan. So I think it'd be great to go through these in the context of an independent board member joining a board of directors. The first step, as you said, is to position yourself for success. What's your advice here for, let's say, a young wannabe board member? Let me back up a half a step. Let's just remember what's going on here. Boards oversee, approve, guide, and advise executives and most CEOs wish members would stick to board work and stay away from trying to manage execution. Yet, when CEOs want to get on a board, they tend to think that their proven strengths in leading execution should be enough to secure a board seat. Wrong. It's a different role, it's different strengths, it's different marketing, it's different onboarding. So in terms of positioning yourself for success, heading to a new job, if the job is a board job, you got to start, you always start with your own hopes and needs. You, you got to be true to yourself. What, think through why you want to be on the board. What do you want out of the experience? Then consider what different boards are going to need from their members. 
Armed with, armed with that, you can connect the dots between your motivation and strengths. And strengths, I'm using the, the Gallup definition of talent, knowledge, and skills and experience, and the board's needs. So this should be enough to think through, draft your own basic positioning statement. And the heart of that is what you can do for boards. So positioning yourself for success is about figuring out what problems you want to solve, what problems or opportunities do you want to solve or take advantage of, and then how you can do that and why they should believe you based on your strengths. So if you break it down to a positioning statement, it's going to end up being for boards in need of whatever their needs are. What I can do for them is the benefit, what you can do based on your reason to believe. Everything flows from that, your message, your narrative. So that's the key to the positioning part of it. The selection of a board member could be a topic in itself and take, you know, a couple hours to discuss. So let's fast forward to the time where the board member is selected to join the board. I think you mentioned the second step in your book is to leverage the fuzzy front end and just stop relationships. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Yeah, there's this magic time. We, we sort of stole it from uh, from product development. There, there's a there's a time between you when you've got the product and when you've got the prototype and when it goes real. So we define the fuzzy front end uh, between the moment you accept the job. You know, there, there are these sort of stages of onboarding. There's before your contact. There's what you do between uh, your first contact and the offer. There's what you do between the offer and acceptance. Now, now we're focused on between the uh, the moment of accepting and the moment of starting the job. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just magic. And you got to do a couple of things. First thing is you've got to learn. You've got to get up to speed because the minute you are on a board, you're on the board. You don't get a three, three week honeymoon or anything, you know, in that first board meeting, you may have to vote on things. So, you know, you likely did a lot of interviewing, a lot of reading during your interviewing, but go back. And now that you're, you're signed up, read all the past board minutes, read the plans, read, you know, read everything you can. So that you're up to speed. One, two, jumpstart these relationships with other board members with one-on-one conversations. Shame on you. If you join a board and you are meeting the other board members for the first time on the first day, you've just blown the opportunity to call them up and say, hey, I'm joining your board in two weeks, two months, whatever. Uh, you know, wondered if you could take 15 minutes, just give me your perspective on, on what I should know. Mm-hmm. And if you or any of the listeners have ever listened to Brene Brown's um, TED talk on the power of vulnerability, uh, you'll realize just how powerful that ask is. It's a great way to start a relationship. You're vulnerable. You're not saying you're weak. You're not saying you don't belong on the board. You're saying you're new, mm-hmm. which you are. And you're asking this person for help. And what board member doesn't want to help a new board member be successful and make the best contributions that new board member can make? So it's a great way to start a conversation. And these board members can tell you which side of the street to drive on. So you don't look too stupid in your first board meeting. So one learn. The second most important thing is jumpstart these relationships. You know, live if you can. If not, at least do it by phone. Besides answering your questions, is there anything other board members can do to facilitate your experience joining the board? 
Well, of course they can. So in the book on boarding, what we say is the five steps people need to do are align, acquire, accommodate, assimilate, and accelerate. Let me take a couple of minutes on that. So this is from the perspective of another board member helping you come in. So before they've contacted you, they should be aligned on why they need another board member, what they want the board member to do. As they're acquiring you, they should have helped take out the personal, personal risk. And that's all leading up to the moment you've accepted. So now these board members, they can do three things. One is they can accommodate you. And accommodating is making sure you can do work. That's arming you with the information and the tools you need. If everything's on, is going to get distributed on an iPad, they got to make sure you have an iPad. If it's coming in a different format, they need to make sure you're ready to do real work. Then the next piece is assimilate. They can bring you in, and this is about mitigating the relationship risk. They can not only just build their relationship, they can tell you who else you need to have relationships with, and they can help facilitate those. And then accelerate is following through to uh, help you get on the right committees and get up to speed on that. Maybe now let's fast forward to your first board meeting. And I think the next step you mentioned that's very, very important is to take control of day one, kind of make a powerful first impression and confirm your entry message. How do you think an independent board member should address that during the first board meeting? Yeah, so it's different if you're coming in as the leader of an operating company versus coming in as an independent board member. Mm -hmm. So in an operating company, you know, everybody's watching you and 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 they're going to look at everything you do. Same thing's true in a, in a board meeting, but you want to have a very, very different entry strategy. Your entry strategy in a board meeting is think of an Olympic diver entering the pool. Less splash, the better. What you want to do on your first day and your first board meeting is shut up. The less you say, the better. You're there to listen. If you have to vote, vote. But there is no upside to looking smart. And there's huge downside to looking foolish. So certainly your first board meeting, maybe your first two board meetings, the less you say, the better. Whereas at if you're meeting an operating company, you need to come in and establish your leadership presence and, uh, and, and kickstart things. Here, it's exactly the opposite. At going to a board, you want to say as little as possible. Sorry, that wasn't the answer you expected. But that's my learning. That's interesting. And I think you also mentioned in your book that, you know, you cannot just arrive in a new company, stand up and tell people your new ideas. Can it need time to establish strong relationships with other people, establish your leadership, get a better feel of the culture? Is there any particular approach or timing that you recommend for independent board member to kind of start slowly expressing their own views and trying to defend their positions? So what happens is you're in an operating company, you're there every day. If you're a board member, you're at the board meetings once a quarter, once a month, whatever it is. So, so it's a different cadence. And you know what you do over your first picket two weeks in a company with 10 interactions, you, you can't wait 10 quarterly meetings to do that because you're not going to make an impact for two and a half years. So the idea with board members is to start to build the relationships and start to make the impact outside the board meetings. You know, first make your impact on the committee meetings. First make your your impact by uh, the questions you ask other board members. Make your impact by uh, helping the chairman or the lead director. And evolve slowly 
into trying to make an impact in the board meetings. You, you don't want to say that it's almost like a lawyer, like a lawyer doesn't want to ask a question in court that they don't know the answer to. You don't want to push your early positions in a board meeting unless you know you've aligned other board members around those positions outside the board meeting before the board meeting. So the, the timing, you almost think of it like a, a two meeting cadence. Before the first meeting, which is effectively the fuzzy front end, all you're doing is building relationships. At the first meeting, you're learning. Between the first meeting and the second meeting, then you can start making an impact behind the scenes, outside the board meeting. And then at the second meeting, you might make a little impact so that by your third board meeting, you're fully accepted and you're fully able to make uh, the best possible contribution. I think the next step you mentioned, but I'm not sure if it's really applicable to independent board members, is to create burning imperatives. Can you tell us a bit more what are burning imperatives and what's their purpose and whether should boards use them? The eight steps are really designed for an executive joining a company. So the next steps are actually uh, the steps of, of, of tactical capacity with an operating company. So it, it's getting alignment around a burning imperative. It's driving the, driving the operational accountability and then strengthening the organization. So the analogy you don't do that with 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 a board because right. you're the leader, you're the independent director. But the analogy is, you really want to engage with those three processes. The burning imperative kicks off the strategic process, and so you want to engage. You will want to engage with the strategic process, the organizational process. Sorry, the strategic process, the operational process, and the organizational process in that order. The boards and companies have mirror. When you think about, and they need to be linked, the board's strategic process and the company's strategic process are, are intimately linked. You've got to have the same strategy. But the board's operational process, a lot of that is committees. And then the organizational process is, is strengthening the board and, and continuing to grow it. So mm -hmm. I would argue, first, you engage with the strategies. Make sure they're right. Make sure you get in sync with the strategic cadence. Because if you're coming into the annual strategic plan, you want to get up to speed and be able to make your contributions to that strategic plan. If the strategic plan has already happened, it's not in anybody's best interest at this point for you to really challenge that plan at this point, but you can help them uh, twist the dials so that the board and management is spending time where it's most important strategically. Operationally, get involved in the, the committees where you can make the greatest impact. Mm -hmm. And it all comes back to the greatest impact as opposed to the one that is the most fun or whatever. You're on the board to make an impact. You're on the board to contribute. Get on those right committees. And then later, when it's appropriate, you can get involved in uh, helping the board improve organizationally. I wouldn't touch that for until at least the end of your first year on the board. It will not be well received. Do you have any other advice for independent board members joining a board before we move on to the next set of questions? I mean, just the one, and, and I almost went back to it earlier, is be really clear on what type of board you're joining. And I roughly divide them into public, private fiduciary, private non-fiduciary, and non-profit. And the public ones are the ones everybody thinks about, but you know, there's only 16 or 17,000 of them. So, sorry, 16 or 1,700. So there's you know, there's relatively small number of public companies. And there it's really clear because you've got all the public guidance and everything, you know, it, 
That's easy. If you're joining a private boards, and most boards are private boards, you know, some of these are huge companies mm-hmm. and, and they have independent directors. You really need to understand whether it's a fiduciary role or a non-fiduciary role. And the difference is the fiduciary board members have duties of loyalty and care to all the share owners. So no matter what's going on, if you are on the board of the JD Power and Associates, where Dave is the controlling board member, he's not he's not the only shareholder. So these fiduciary board members had a duty of, of care and loyalty to all the other shareholders. So they would have to challenge Dave as appropriate. That's if it's a private fiduciary board. If it's a non-fiduciary board, it's really an advisory board. And, and, and this will happen with private equity firms where they put people on a board. Yeah, you're in an independent director, but the private equity firm is going to make all the decisions. Mm-hmm. You just need to be clear on that. And, and they're fine and they're important and they'll compensate you. But don't pretend to make decisions you're not making and don't get in trouble for not making decisions you should be making. The fourth category is nonprofits, which what happens with nonprofits is you really need to understand the specific role because you cannot generalize nonprofits because sometimes people, board members are brought there for governance or for getting or giving money or for representing stakeholders, mm-hmm. may or may not be the shareholders, for making connections or contributing their own advice or time. You're having a lot of success in onboarding and helping your clients, but how should they measure their success or failures in onboarding the CEO in their company? We're nuts about better results faster. We've built an entire business on this and and obviously we've delivered. It's, it's why our top 10 customers of clients have used this 180 times. We have two measures that we push. One is our program helps these leaders and their teams get done in their first 100 days what would normally take six to 12 months. So it's an acceleration play. Mm-hmm. So there's one huge measure of success is how fast they're getting things done. If it's a turnaround, if you can save a quarter in the turnaround, fantastic. If it's growth, if you can accelerate the growth and you know deliver next year's plan this year, fantastic. So one is accelerated results. So if you've onboarded somebody right, they will accelerate results. The other is is failure. And you know, if you've got 40% of people or more leaving uh, within 18 months, you're doing something wrong. So you want these people to stick. And as I said before, we've reduced that failure rate from 40% to below 5%. And that's a big impact. What is the biggest mistake a board can make during the onboarding process? So, So if it's one, it's fit. But if I go back to the five things that the board should be doing in onboarding a CEO, you know, the, the original sin is poor alignment. Is, is if they're not clear on what they want the CEO to do and what they, what type of CEO they want. If you, if you think about it, go back to uh, Porter's value chain. Every organization has to design, it has to build things, it has to sell and market, it has to deliver, and then it has to provide some sort of customer service. Every organization does that. But within that, the best organizations focus on, every, everybody has to market and sell, but the best organizations focused, most effective organizations focus on one of the four other things. Mm-hmm. The others say, yeah, we're doing everything, but we're really going to win based on our ability to design. 
or they say, we're really going to win because we're going to outproduce people or outdeliver them or outserve them. Once you make that choice, that then dictates the type of leader you want. And, and of course, there's situational leader and leadership and all leaders have to lead in different ways. But if I've got a design organization, my, the, the E in CEO better stand for chief enablement officer because taking care of those designers, those innovators, those wackos, you know, think Apple, you know, the, the CEO of Apple has to nourish innovation or they fail. Mm-hmm. If it's a production company, this the E and CEO better stand for chief enforcer. Because if I'm a production company, my planes cannot fall out of the sky. We have to do everything right. This is about compliance. That's a very, very different role than being the chief enabler. If I'm a distribution company, like, you know, effectively Amazon is a distribution company. They're doing all sorts of wonderful innovations. It's fantastic. But the heart of their business is distribution. And the head of that company or other distribution companies better be the chief enroller, pulling people in across the matrix, across the ecosystem. And if I'm into service, if, I, if I'm going to, if I'm like the Ritz Carlton and I'm going to win by providing superior service to my competitors, the E and CEO better be the chief experience officer. So the board has to align around the type of person they want, or they're going to get the wrong person. Then when they acquire, they better, better make sure they're acquiring for motivation and fit. The strengths are the easy piece. Oh yeah. Does this person have the strengths to do the job? Well, yeah, that's great. But if you don't know that they really care, if you don't know they're really motivated, and if you don't think they're going to fit with the culture or fit with the culture you want, they're going to fail. So that's why that's the number one mistake. If you don't get the fit right, nobody can fix that. Then the board or a board member needs to then make sure the CEO is set up for success because you've accommodated their needs so they can do work. You need to make sure to assimilate them in and you need to help accelerate their progress because they're going to be onboarding for a very long time. That's the long answer to your question. The short answer to your question is the one thing the board must do to uh, help reduce failure is get the fit right. The last question I have for you is, in your past clients, which engagement was the funniest for you in terms of challenge, but also in terms of outcome? And, and what did you learn from it? You know, I'm going to go with a, a, a recency one. I won't name the client, but engineering consulting firm promoted uh, somebody to be CEO. They promoted them from within. They'd, they'd been one of their engineers for 18 years. The person's fantastic. And they promoted somebody else to be chief operating officer. And they asked us to help them do an imperative workshop, which was going to be just getting people aligned around the strategies. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that, but you haven't started yet. Let's let's get together and let's do a 100-day plan. And and so we did a 100-day plan for them. and. And what they were struggling with was how to work with their board because the company had been, there was an entrepreneur founder who's fantastic and is still there. He then sold 65% of the company to the employees. And with the previous CEO, they had a management board. So it was the, the founder was backing off. So we had a management board and the CEO basically effectively did what the management board told them to do. And with this promotion, they were switching to a real private fiduciary board where the, the board was a real board representing all the shareholders. 
And these guys were struggling with how to work with their board. And I said, well, it's easy. You just get them to agree the strategic plan and the operating plan. And then once they've done that, that gets lets you and your leadership team execute those plans. Mm-hmm. And they looked at me and they said, oh, well, yeah, interesting. We have two little problems with that. I said, oh, what are they? They said, in 30 years, we've never actually done a plan. They had no business plans. They certainly had no strategic plan. And they didn't have a leadership team because people just kind of did what they wanted because they didn't have plans. And I said, okay, we're going to fix this. And so we used literally most of the strategic planning tools out of our book. And we did a six-month process to help them. We created a, a steering committee, which had no votes. We created a working group to do the work to eventually go back to the board that had all the power and and get them to approve things. And we went through all the steps of the strategic planning and they took it to the board and the board approved the first draft. And and now they're doing their operating plans and by probably in the next six weeks, everybody will have contributed. Everybody will know exactly what they're going to do. And so for this CEO and chief operating officer to be successful, which I am now confident they will be, they needed to put a structure in place at the board and in the company that had not been in place before. And it's been wonderful because it was almost a blank page and they've been so receptive and they're so bright and it's so it's really wonderful and gratifying to watch. There is no doubt these guys, they probably would have been okay. They would have petered along because there was no fit issue. They'd been there 18 years, but they wouldn't have made the impact that they're about to make without the change. George, it's been so nice to have you on the show today. We learned so much about onboarding and management in general. So we really appreciate that you took a lot of your time actually to answer our questions. And we're super grateful. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode. We hope you found some wisdom and knowledge that you can apply during your next board meeting or more broadly in your business journey. If you like this conversation, please share it with your friends and colleagues and write a review on iTunes to help others discover the show. To find more episodes of the Boards Network podcast, go to boardsnetwork.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Boards Network for the show, at Philippe Nissen, and at Justine Huang 34 for our personal accounts.